0: Good evening. Can you hear me in the back? Anybody can't? So as I opened my file of uh, in the uh, in my room today. Uh, The network that I connect to is called uh, Dhamma, and I opened a file of Dhamma documents, and the network icon told me that I was, quote, connected to Dhamma, (laughs) wait, signal strength very low. I hope that's not a harbinger of things to come. So, I'm wondering how many of you are feeling like that after three days of sitting and walking. <laughs> I'm sure you're connected to Dhamma, but feel you're just tuning into the signal, and it's just beginning to get stronger and stronger. And so, if you feel as if it's still low, don't worry. It will continue to strengthen. And as our practices and our consequent understanding from our practice grows and gets stronger, so does our connection to Dhamma. So what we may have discovered, even in just these three days of uh, sitting and walking, is that we can nurture and cultivate and bring forth uh, qualities in our meditation practice and life, qualities of heart and mind that can strengthen our wisdom and our compassion and our love. And it's not that we have to acquire them, it's not that we have to go out and find where we can buy them or get them or uh, access them, because they're already natural to our being. But they can be developed. And I'd like to just talk a little bit about how to hold these teachings. Tonight I'm going to talk about uh, the Brahma Viharas um, and the development of them and the connection between uh, love and wisdom. But I'd like to talk about how to hold the teachings. In the meetings that I've had some of you have talked about um, intense self judgment and I can't help but feel that perhaps there is a message uh, that you're getting and and I I know in my own teaching I do encounter this quite a bit that uh, sometimes the language we may use in teaching may somehow transmit that there's an ideal or perfect example of uh, who you should be or who we all should be. And usually when we put up this kind of um, template of perfection, we certainly know that we're not it, right? Right? You know, it's somewhere out there, but certainly we're not it. And so you may think that there's some measuring stick by which um, our practice should be judged. But the Buddha Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, have, as far as I know, no concept of blame or of sin, original or otherwise. Rather, he taught that there's a kind of misunderstanding that we all share. And that misunderstanding is something that we can be seen through, that can be seen through, and uh, that can be transformed. It's as if we're in in, in darkness, and someone says, oh, here's the switch, right? and the light is, uh, we discover the light switch. And it's not a matter of fault or blame that we're in this dark room. It's part of the human package. So it's it's innocent. And it's really fortunate that there is a switch. So our life can get brightened up uh, considerably we can practice, we can see each other differently, we can discover the colors on the walls, enjoy the furniture in the room, enjoy uh, the beings in the room when there's light. And if we can see our limitations in the same way, with a kind of uh, precision and clarity and gentleness and good-heartedness and kindness, then we begin to find that our world is more vast and more refreshing and more fascinating than we had ever realized before. So the, in, in other words, the, the key to feeling uh, more whole and less shut off and shut down is to be able to see clearly who we are and what we're doing right now in this moment with this quality of friendliness that Christina talked about when she introduced the Brahma Viharas a couple of days ago, or it may have been just yesterday. Time flies. So there's an innocence and it's it's an innocent mistake that keeps us caught in our own style of ignorance or unkindness or shut downness. Because as a rule, you know, in our culture, we're not taught in school uh, how to see ourselves clearly. We're not encouraged to see clearly what is with gentleness. Instead there's this kind of basic misunderstanding that we should try to be better than we already are. That what's really what what will really work for us is a kind of self-improvement program. That we should and, and included in that is to have as few painful experiences as is possible and if we could just learn to get away from what's painful, then we'd be happy. And that message gets uh, communicated in not only in our schools, but in our, um, in our media, in our families, because every, we're all subject, subjected to, the, to this conditioning. And so it's not anybody's fault but that's where it is. So it's a kind of innocence and a kind of misunderstanding that we all share and that keeps us suffering. So we're not um, trying to become somebody else, but we're really seeing what's possible, how we can wake up in this very body, with this very mind, with this very heart. Aldous Huxley said, the spiritual journey does not consist of arriving at a new destination where a person gains what he did not have or becomes what he is not. I'm sure he meant to include the the other half of humanity, the feminine. (laughs) It consists in the dissipation of one's own ignorance concerning oneself and life, and the gradual growth of that understanding, which begins the spiritual awakening. So I'll read that again. The spiritual journey does not consist of arriving at a new destination where a person gains what he or she did not have, or becomes what he or she is not. It consists in the dissipation of one's own ignorance concerning oneself and life, and the gradual growth of that understanding, which brings the spiritual awakening. So our practice is seeing the body we have, the mind we have, the domestic situation we have, the job we have, the family we have, the, you know, the neighborhood we have, the community we have, the world we have, the people who are in our lives. And our practice is training us how to respond to these phenomena in our lives as they are presented from moment to moment to moment. And through seeing our reactivity, we begin to deepen in our wisdom. And it gives us the ability to take off that lens of reactivity through which we've been seeing and see more clearly that there's a possibility of responding rather than reacting. So we see our emotions and our thoughts and the sensations in the body just as they are right now in this very moment, in this very room, on this very seat. And we're not trying to make them go away or become better than we already are, but we're seeing very clearly with precision in kindness and gentleness. As Christina said, we're drawing near to in a spirit of friendliness. And so through this, these practices, these Brahma-Vihara practices, we begin to learn how to open to our thoughts and emotions, our minds and our hearts, to all of the people that we meet in the world by drawing near to in this friendliness. And we let go of the thought that we should become somebody else, which is a kind of aggressiveness towards ourselves So, one other thing, in our practice there's no timetable, no linear time in which we're required to attain anything, to become this or that, to become more patient or to have more um, generosity or more kindness or compassion. Because again, if we're working with qualities of mind and heart that generate wisdom and love, then the first person towards whom these qualities are addressed is this one, this being sitting right here on this Cushion right now. So instead of struggling with what we see as our faults or our difficulties working not through aversion and struggle but through the art of letting go. And that's the, uh, the foundation or the background against which we're working. And my favorite teaching on letting go is from one of my uh, teachers from a while ago, Ajahn Sumedho. Who is an elder monk in the Thai forest monastery limi- lineage? He said, For minds obsessed by compulsive thinking and grasping, you simplify your meditation practices to just two words let go. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that, achieve this and go into that, the grasping mind wants to read the suttas, study the Abhidhamma, learn Pali and Sanskrit, then the Majjhimika. The Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books, and become a renowned authority on Buddhism. (laughs) Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international conferences, why not just let go, let go, let go? For years I did nothing but this in my practice. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, let go until the desire faded so i'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in an incredible amount of suffering there's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international buddhist conferences (laughs) (laughs) we can can testify Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. Instead, just be an earthworm who knows only two words. Let go, let go, let go. That's six, but we'll excuse him. You see, ours is called the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana. So we only have these poverty-stricken practices. (laughs) So I wanted to just... um, Really establish that ground from which we're looking we'll be looking at the uh, Brahma viharas um, to know that not only are we practicing gentleness in towards others and towards situations but we're also practicing it uh, towards ourselves so these four qualities of heart that the Buddha taught. Um, are um, loving-kindness, compassion, unselfish or altruistic, or you'll see it sometimes as appreciative or sympathetic joy and equanimity, metta karuna, mudita, and upeka. So the story is in the uh, suttas that a Brahmin once heard that the Buddha um, could enter divine, uh, the heavenly uh, realms without all of the incantations that were done by the Brahmins in order to um, uh, merge with Brahma. And uh, of course the Buddha's practices were um, Shall we say revolutionary or radical in his time, uh, because they were not in keeping with the the, uh, the philosophies of the the Brahmins who were the ruling uh, class. So the Buddha, um, instead of uh, correcting, you know, many assumptions that this Brahmin named Suba had about Um, uh, deities and divinities and all of that, sort of joined with him, joined with his uh, his, um, uh, view of the world and told him how he could um, access the heavenly realms. And that's how these qualities of mind and heart got to be named the Brahma Viharas, which, again, in Christina's uh, um, introduction, she told you is, can be translated as divine home, divine uh, abode, or Vihara is uh, technically monastery, but it's also the home to return to. And so the Buddha told Subha that this was how he could access these heavenly realms, that he could practice boundless kindness towards all beings, boundless compassion with all beings, boundless joy in the basic goodness of all beings, and boundless equanimity toward all beings, whether friend or foe. And practicing thus, the Buddha said, was, makes it possible for one to transform the obstacles of meanness gloating over the misfortune of others, unhappiness and preferential mind. This was the way he explained that we enter into right now, right here and now, not in some other life, but right here and now, we enter into the Brahma Vihara, the divine abode, the heavenly realms. So um, often you will see metta, loving kindness or friendliness, talked about as encompassing compassion and joy because they're the natural emanations of a heart of loving kindness. When metta meets suffering, uh, compassion is its response. When it meets joy, mudita or sympathetic joy is its response. So love and compassion are at the heart of this uh, practice. It's not only love and compassion, as I said before, but equally love for ourselves. And we need to have this love and friendliness for ourselves in order to have friendliness, openness, and compassion towards others. And this metta, this heart of metta, Is totally linked with wisdom. These are not adjunct practices where, you know, the kind of grown up practice is mindfulness, and then we've got this little, you know, nice thing that we do to um, soften the heart a bit. They are completely linked and necessary for each other for balance. They're two sides of the same coin. Love by itself, as we know, can, be become, can break down into sentimentality and can be mushy and misguided. And wisdom by itself can become dry. But love and wisdom uh, expressed together contribute to a more integrated and powerful life. This is from Martin Luther King. Power, he said, and he talks about it as love and power. Power, he said, is the ability to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, or economic changes. In this sense, power is not only desirable, but necessary in order to implement the demands of love and justice. One of the greatest problems of history, is that the concepts of love and power are usually contrasted as polar opposites. Love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. So for me, uh, power and wisdom, power used well to implement the demands of justice is wisdom and without a balance between the two, each of them falls into their extremes. So the understanding of the three characteristics of phenomena, death and change, unreliability and suffering, non-self and emptiness is at the root of skillful love. So wisdom is at the root of skillful love. As both my parents and one sibling of mine have died, (coughs) I have a deeper and less understanding, less theoretical understanding of the truth of impermanence, for instance. More and more deeply, I know that I am mortal, That my husband, my remaining sister, my friends, everyone, my children, everyone will also die. Life feels more and more precious. I have a deeper love for those who are close to me and those who are not. As I know viscerally that every single one of us will die. We can die at any moment. Every breath could be our last breath. And so I'm impelled to act with kindness. I'm impelled to act with love out of this wisdom. And it's the love that imbues my understanding with wisdom. So, loving kindness, metta, should be known in the context of patience. Before we talk about the Brahma Viharas themselves, I want to just talk a little bit about patience. Because I've Noticed that it's, it's the quality of patience that protects the heart from falling into reactivity, my heart from falling into reactivity. And that patience allows for poise in the face of anxiety and an agitation. And that it's patience that allows me to explore loving-kindness. And that without patience, it's difficult for mindfulness to appear. And in one of the old texts, there's a beginning when, when metta is discussed, the Vasudhimaga, the author Buddha Gosa recommends that before we do any kind of meta practice, that we sit down and reflect on the disadvantages of hatred and the advantages of patience. Because he said, unless we see the, dis- the, advantages, the disadvantages of hatred, then the, the desire to overcome it will not be there. And unless we see the advantages of patience, The desire to build it will not be there. And that for me has been a really important um, teaching. And I've seen, certainly in my own practice with the Brahma Viharas, that if I can cultivate and evoke patience in my orbit, that the development of these four brahmaviharas becomes much more, much easier. They're not easy by any means, but they're easier. So I'd like to just put that out for something for you to reflect on and consider. So the qualities of metta are love for oneself, allowing and non-judging. Spaciousness and lightness in the mind. Loving kindness towards others, not relating with grasping and attachment. And bringing friendliness to every situation. And I notice that, you know, these days it's a, it's, a, it's a regular and frequent occurrence that there's some problem that you have to call customer service for. <laughs> and it's one of my, most, my least favorite things to do. And so I can always notice that when I'm about to call cus, customer service for anything, in any connection with any company that there's a kind of tightness that starts to you know that starts to come and I'm reminded oh patience 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 yes yes patience 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 patience, patience. and then you know of course after the music <laughs> and the um you know, and the press one, press two, press three, press four. And if you, after you've pressed four, then you need to press one again. <laughs> you know, and all of that, patience, 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 patience. And I, I keep reminding myself that if I bring that whole history of the phone call to that moment when an actual human being actually shows up, on the other end of the phone. That the quality of the phone call is very different than the quality of the phone call when they answer and I say, where have you been? I've been on this phone for 15 minutes now. (laughs) But that quality of friendliness that says, hey, how are you? Where are you? Oh, you're in Arizona. I'm in New York, how's the weather? that just that, just that acknowledgement, this being that is now there doing their job, having nothing to do with the system that was set up, is, um, is being treated like a human being with some friendliness to whom I've drawn near, that the quality of the phone call is very different. So bringing friendliness to situations can definitely turn them around. Metta is unconditional. It needs nothing in return. And as such, it's there's in the in the uh, teachings of the Brahmaviharas viharas there what's known as the near enemy and the far enemy. And uh, the near the far enemy is uh, the quality of heart uh, for which the the brahma vihara is an antidote so for instance with metta the quality of heart that for which metta is an antidote is hatred or aversion and uh, then there's a near and en- so there that's the far enemy and then there's a near enemy which is uh a quality of heart that masquerades, that looks like the Brahma Vihara. And in the case of metta, the near enemy is love with attachment, love that wants something in return, whether it's for you to be a certain way or for you to do a certain thing or um, something that's required of the, the being that is the subject of the metta. So it's unconditional, universal loving kindness. It doesn't single out a class of being, but shines like the sun on everything and everyone. And there's a haiku, in the shade of the cherry tree, there are no strangers. That reminds me very much of metta. And, and I was told by um, a Pali scholar that sometimes metta, can be translated as sun. So it's like the sun that um, sh- uh, shines on all beings. So it's a feeling of friendliness and warmth for all beings everywhere. And just like all of the other three qualities, it's a truly boundless feeling. We're not looking for others to others for completion or relating out of need. Rather, we're radiating an infinite quality of love And sometimes metta can seem like a daunting task. There's so much hatred, racism, injustice in the world. And someone asked uh, me in another retreat, how is it possible to send metta to one who we think has done something that's unforgivable? It is possible, because we're not asking for anything in return. And what we're doing when we do a metta practice is not so much concerned with uh, the external world as we are concerned with the heart of kindness that meets with the heart and mind of wisdom. So the, the meta is not so much so that we can effect some change in the outer world, even though I was talking about how it does, and it can. But the primary purpose is really for our overcoming of ill will, our overcoming of hatred, our overcoming of resentment. And in fact, loving kindness, this attitude of goodwill, is the second step on the Noble Eightfold Path, wise intention of harmlessness and of goodwill. So you see, it's it's not divorced from what we're doing. It's not adjunct to or. Um, subordinate to what we're doing in our uh, mindfulness practice. So if you look at the people whom we admire, whether it's here or abroad, Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela, Aung San Suu Kyi, Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, they're admired not for having preached resentment and continuing bitterness but because they preached love. If you were never allowed to return to your homeland, never allowed to see your birthplace, your family, your friends, how bitter, angry, and resentful would you be? How would you react in that way and act, how would you act towards the usurpers of your homeland? So the average person might seek violent or demonstrative actions based on righteous indignation which we could, you know, we may not condone but we could certainly understand. So we have ecocide and genocide and forced labor camps and repopulation aimed at annihilation of the, um, of indigenous peoples. And all of that has happened to the Tibetans. And yet, the Dalai Lama has always advocated nonviolence. He says, my religion is kindness. In the tradition of Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Oscar Ramirez and many other enlightened beings in our times of chaos and upheaval and injustice and violence. And he still expresses goodwill towards the Chinese government and prays for his Chinese brothers and sisters who also suffer imprisonment and torture. And when you're in his presence, you certainly experience this tremendous warmth and kindness towards everyone. And Joseph Goldstein tells the story of being in a room with the Dalai Lama when somebody here at IMS actually, and somebody asked him about self-hatred and he said the Dalai Lama responded immediately with, no, you're wrong. But the way he said it, he said, was filled with so much love and compassion. Just the idea that we would not hold ourselves in that heart of friendliness and kindness. And everyone in the neighborhood is infected by it. I remember seeing him at Madison Square Garden and they had policemen all around and you know they started out really all right just try anything right and by the time the Dalai Lama had finished speaking they were all kind of like (laughs) it was it was so beautiful you know you just feel that state of blessing be happy from him, that's the wish of metta. And then there is uh, compassion, karuna, which is the way that the heart of metta responds in the presence of suffering, dukkha. So here's a beautiful Hasidic story. There's a sign on a wall in a classroom that says, in this school, we place the truth or the true teachings on people's hearts. The student asked the teacher, why do you place it on our hearts and not in our hearts? And the teacher said, only God can do that. We place it on your hearts so that when your hearts break, the teachings fall in. I love this quality of compassion that's embodied in uh, Kuan Yin. You've probably seen uh, some representations of um, Kuan Yin as uh, Avalokiteshvara who has a thousand arms. But Kuan Yin, the embodiment of Kuan Yin who listens and hears the cries of the world And for me, that's a beautiful um, image or representation of the quality of compassion in the heart. So her 1,000 arms hold the, and are capable of holding and attending to all of the sorrows of the world. So compassion invites us. Into a heart that quivers, the heart of kindness that quivers in the presence of of suffering. I was here several years ago, many, many, many years ago, on a long retreat, and I had a um, an experience that I won't describe all of the details to you, but it it lasted for several days on this retreat. And it had to do with the feeling of abandonment that arose very surprisingly and that I didn't even know about that it happened when I was five years old. And uh, I went through this really long kind of process with it in which um, I wept and I cried and I felt it and I went to my room and I cried some more and I came into the hall and I tried to sit and I'd cry some more, and just days and days and days and days and days. And I, it felt as if this sorrow, this suffering, would never end. And there was a sense of self-pity in it that I noticed, and yet I had, I felt as if I had no power to stop it. And what finally happened, sitting right back there at the back of the hall, I sat, tried to meditate, and and for the first time in days was able to actually sit for more than five minutes without weeping. And as I sat, these images of five-year-old girls who had all been abandoned kept coming into my sphere. And they would come, they would present themselves to me face-to-face, and then they would leave. And then someone else would come, and there were just thousands of five-year-old girls from all over the world who had been abandoned. And it was the first time that I really understood the teaching of compassion, that and the teaching of compassion's near enemy is pity. P i t y. That it's not uh, it's not that we see sorrow or suffering, and we hold ourselves back from it, and and that we yes we have some sympathy for that being who is suffering but no feeling of connection or um, a shared humanity and that experience of these five-year-old girls really was quite visceral and and quite strong and sharp Uh, uh, the understanding that this quivering of the heart is not one that's distant, but one that comes out of the understanding that we are all completely connected and that this one human heart is the heart that is broken when any heart is broken. That we're all together in this difficult paradox of beauty and joy and sorrow. And that when we meet suffering, that this compassion that arises out of the heart of kindness is one that draws near, that doesn't turn away. And isn't that what our practice is training us to do? Our practice of mindfulness is really training us to be able to draw near with this heart of kindness and actually see clearly what is true in this human heart, that there is sorrow and there is joy. And so the far enemy of compassion is cruelty. But the near enemy is pity, one that where we feel as if we're above it. We're not part of that. So don't be afraid to experience your suffering and your pain. There is a way of experiencing that suffering and that pain that can feel very right. And don't be afraid to experience the suffering of the world. There's a way of being with it that can feel very right. It's not pleasant, but it can feel very right. And in that rightness can be a great feeling of peace. You all have the capacity for peace. You all have the capacity for compassion and for loving kindness. One of the most, it's one of the most beautiful things that you can do. I remember when I was um, a volunteer chaplain at the uh, maximum security prison in New York, the only one in New York State. And I remember going in there with all kinds of ideas about what I was gonna teach everybody and how the whole prison was gonna become Buddhist, right? (laughs) We don't proselytize. But everybody was gonna be meditating and and it was gonna spread all over the prison. And I had all kinds of, you know, ideas about that. And so I'd go and I'd offer a meditation. And people would come and it, and it was wonderful. It was really beautiful. But really what I discovered was, it wasn't so much those, those times, although I was really happy to be able to offer those skills to people who were in really desperate, a desperate situation. But what was most valuable, what was most useful was that, and they taught me this, I didn't teach myself, was just the ability, and I, I wound up in the hospital, with uh, in, in, in the prison hospital, working with people who were, you know, had lots of different um, ailments and diseases, some life-threatening and some people did die. Um, But what was most valuable was my willingness to simply be there. To simply be there and to hear and receive their stories. And to offer whatever support I could in the deep suffering of the mental health uh, arm of of the hospital of the prison as well as just the hospital for physical ailments. And just a willingness to be able to sit with people and hear about their families and their children and their situation was incredibly healing. That ability to be with the pain, to cry together, to listen deeply, to be deeply with the pain and not shrink away from it and not think, oh, that's them, this is not me, but to join with, to come near to in friendliness and in compassion. And the third quality, the second emanation of loving-kindness is the heart that opens in uh, response to the joy of another, buddhita, one of the hardest and most wonderful practices to do. That is to be happy when someone else is happy. To not think, oh that job was coming right at me and they got it instead. I taught a, uh, met a retreat with Sharon Salzberg and she told the story about her friend who went to the Boston Red Sox, a Boston Red Sox game and you know they have those gloves where they, you know, they have the gloves in those stands and they they wait, they hope that a home run will come at them so that they can catch the, the, the ball. And her friend told her the story of um, uh, the ball coming right at her, right at her, and she knew it was meant for her, and she put her glove up and it came right at her and suddenly somebody just right in the, you know, right two seconds, a nanosecond before it was going to hit her glove, it hit this person's glove and the other person got it. And it's such a beautiful example of the mind that hears about someone else's good fortune and wants, and instead of rejoicing in it, says, oh, that was coming right at me. Why did you get it? Right. And it's a mind of lack, a mind of um, insufficiency that has jealousy or envy, and that's the quality of mind that Mudita is the antidote to, to which Mudita is the antidote proper grammar and it's called sympathetic joy or altruistic joy or appreciative joy the joy of the joy of others and what the Dalai Lama says about that is if you're just happy in your own happiness you know then it's a kind of measly happiness because it's only happiness of one but if you're willing to be happy for everybody else who's happy your chances of happiness multiply by six billion (laughs) So this quality of mudita is a wonderful quality to um, uh, to, to develop in your, in your practice. And again, I hope what you're seeing is that each of these qualities comes not because it's a good idea, but it really comes out of a deep heart of wisdom that sees and understands the human condition, that understands what causes suffering, the existence of suffering, what causes suffering, and the end of suffering. (coughs) So that we're not just thinking, well, it's a good idea and I'll I'll do that after I kind of become the Maitreya of the age, as Ajahn Sumedho said. or that's, that'll come with the package, but that it's something that's worthwhile um, developing. And the fourth quality is the quality of equanimity. means discerning rightly or discerning justly or being in the middleness or in the evenness, which is the recognition of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that the Taoists call this life. That That we have both sides of the balance sheet. There's joy, there's sorrow, joy, and sorrow. And the Buddha talked about these as the eight worldly winds that blow through our lives. Gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, and fame and disrepute. That these are winds that are constantly blowing through our lives. And that we need not be blown about like tumbleweed so that when what's pleasant or when gain or um, praise or fame or pleasure happens, we think, oh, I've done something right, right? It's, this is me, this is good, this is how life should be, this is how life is, and when we get the other four the loss and the pain and the blame and the disrepute. We don't think, oh, now something has gone terribly wrong. Who's to blame? But that equanimity understands that we can sit or stand in the middleness and have a wide view that understands with wisdom the inevitability of these worldly winds, that they come and go in our lives. And wisdom tells us that it's not so much what is happening but our relationship to what is happening that makes the difference as to whether we suffer or not. It's not to say that these difficult situations and these difficult experiences are not challenging but that we can bring a, this quality of heart that knows that we're responsible in some measure for our thoughts, words, and deeds, and their consequences. And that all of these worldly winds come not by random uh, happenstance, but they come because of causes and conditions that are complex that come together, and when they come together, the inevitable happens. Whatever those causes are, whatever those conditions are, they will produce their inevitable consequences. And we understand that deeply. So these four qualities of metta, karuna, mudita, and upekha, are qualities that are necessary in our practice and that we can develop right here and right now, as I said in the beginning, not because we kind of go out and get them and scan the uh, horizon to see where we can pick them up, but because they're right here, right here in this mind-body-heart, not somewhere else not belonging to everybody else but me, but really in this mind, body, heart. This is from Thomas Merton. It's from his journals, and it's, he's, the heading of it in the journal is in Louisville at the corner of Fourth and Walnut in the center of the shopping district. I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. Then he goes on. He said, it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts, where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could all see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem Would be that we would fall down and worship each other. Let's sit for a moment. much for your attention. We'll be chanting the metta sutta tonight at the um, next sit. So if you wish to do that, I'll see you then. Good night. Please feel free to go.